0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Seeing is believing, they say. Seeing is believing. Once you witness something, then you know that it's true. You know That it's real. You may struggle to believe, but once you've witnessed it, then you know seeing is believing. Unless it's not. Sometimes seeing is not believing because sometimes you're too close to see things clearly. Sometimes you're too wrapped up in the situation, too involved. The circumstances get in the way. Sometimes you're too self-interested to see things as they really are You see, but you don't believe. What you need in situations like that sometimes is an abstract scenario. You need a situation, a hypothetical that you can look at and kind of extract all of the circumstances, all of the baggage, all of the stuff that ordinarily blinds you. Like something that you can look at and evaluate in the abstract and then make a judgment. Most of us judge rightly in the abstract. Most of us, if you give us a scenario, can come up with the right answer. It's just like most of us can fix other people's lives. Like we can give great advice for what other people should do with their problems, but when it comes to solving our own problems, we can't. It's the same idea. If you can remove self from the equation and just look at it objectively, then you can see what the right answer is. The prophet Nathan understood this really well. And when he found himself having to confront King David, he applied this understanding of human psychology. David at this time was mired in sin, the sin of murder. He had conspired to murder so that he could conceal another sin, the sin of adultery. And if he'd been confronted directly about his sin as a really intelligent man, he would have justified himself and he would have explained why his circumstances did not fit the definition. So the prophet Nathan posed a hypothetical He goes to David, he says, there was this rich man who had a lot of sheep and his poor neighbor only had one. And when he had a guest visit, instead of killing one of his own sheep to entertain him, he goes and he steals the sheep of the guy who had one. Now, King David, a shepherd, and now the judge of Israel immediately, viscerally knows what the right judgment is. He says, that guy should be fined. No, he doesn't. He says, that guy should be put to death. That's how seriously he sees the abuse. And the prophet Nathan turns to him and says, you are the man. You are the man. And when he saw the scenario in the abstract, he judged it rightly, and as he judged it, he condemned himself. Jesus does the exact same thing here in this parable. The parable of the two sons. He presents a hypothetical situation to the men that he's been talking with, as we saw last week, the chief priests and the elders. He poses a situation to them, and as they judge it, they literally bear witness against themselves by condemning their own reaction to John the Baptist. What Jesus also does in this is turn upside down their sense of the way the world works, their sense of the natural hierarchy of things, who's on top and who's on the bottom. So what we're going to do is look at the parable itself and then consider how Jesus applies it. And we're also going to look at similar parables that teach more or less the same thing and how all of those together can apply not just to them, but to us. So first, think about the parable of the two sons and how Jesus applies it. If you need a, a a title or a contrast to think about this parable, you might think of it as a parable about honest rebellion on the one hand versus willful hypocrisy on the other. Right? So the father goes to each of his two sons. He tells them to do the same thing. He says, go and work in the vineyard today. And their two responses embody those two ideas. Honest rebellion on the one hand and willful hypocrisy on the other. Son number one, he's the honest rebel. The father says, go today and work in the vineyard. And he says, I will not. No way, forget about it. I'm not going to do it. But then later he goes. So he says wrong. But eventually he does right. The second son, though, he's the willful hypocrite. His father goes to him and says, go and work in the vineyard today. And he says, (laughs) I'm on my way. Say no more. I'm going. But then he doesn't. He says yes, but he doesn't actually go. So he speaks right, but he does wrong. And Jesus puts this scenario before the audience and says, you be the judge. What do you think? And they judge rightly. If the father says, do my will, and then Jesus asks, which of the two sons does his will, then obviously what matters is not what you say, it's what you do. So yeah, one son says, I won't, and the other one says he will. And by outward appearances, it looks like the first son, the rebel, is the bad son. And the second son is the good son, but he's not, he's just a hypocrite. And actually, the son who says no, but then goes and works, he actually does the will of his father despite the grumbling. So he does the will of the father. Whereas the other son who says all the right things does not do the father's will. So he obviously stands condemned. There is an irony because the one who stands condemned is the one who outwardly appears to be the dutiful child. And it seems like his rebel brother is the difficult one, but the proof is in the pudding. right? It's what they do that matters here. A willful son who refuses at first but then feels bad and obeys is less of a worry than a son who says he will do the right thing to your face and then disobeys. Right? You be the judge. What do you think about that? That's true just in human psychology. If you were dealing with two people, one was like this, one was like that. You had someone who always grumbled. You said, "Go do this," and like, "No, I'm not going to do that." But then they always felt bad about it, and they eventually did it. We're like, "Yeah, there's a problem." Like, ideally, when I say do this, you should say, "Yes, I will do it," and then you should do it. That's the way it ought to work. And if it doesn't work that way, we need to work on that rebellion. But the fact that you always feel bad and come around at the end gives me hope, right? Whereas, if you were dealing with someone, imagine dealing with your own child, and when you told them what to do, to your face, they always said yes. And then they never did it. So that you began to see the pattern and to realize they're lying to my face. Like they're deceiving me willfully. You'd be a lot more worried about that child than you would be about this one. right? Because this problem is a lot more deeply ingrained. Hypocrisy is actually a more corrosive problem than honest rebellion. Now, I want you to note something in the text here, too. Um, We're told, this is reading in the, the English translation, afterward, he changed his mind. That's in verse 29, referring to that first son. He says, I will not, but afterwards, he changed his mind. And then again in verse 32, when Jesus applies it, he says, you did not afterward change your mind, and believe. So both of those instances where we have it translated here, change his mind or change your mind, it's the same Greek verb underneath that. It's metamelomai, metamelomai. Now, metamelomai is to change one's mind about something, yes. But there's a little bit more to it than that because we change our minds about things all the time. But metamelomai is specifically the changing of a mind with the probable implication of regret. So there's a a sense of regret in the change. Like I staked out a position and now I feel bad about it and so I'm going to change my mind. A better way to translate that into English might be something like change of heart. Because in English, a change of heart Expresses that sense of, of kind of going back on or feeling bad about that earlier resolution, or you could stick with the King James version, which simply translated translated it as repent. Right afterward, he repented, and then when you had seen it, repented not. Afterwards, so there's a sense of repentance involved in the change of heart. So. In the parable, we have a rebel who's confronted by the call to righteousness. He repents, and he goes to work in the vineyard. And then we have a hypocrite who's confronted by the same call to righteousness. He claims to be righteous, but refuses to repent. And thus, in refusing, denies righteousness by his deeds. And that action condemns himself. Now, that sense of repentance is borne out in the way that Jesus applies the parable to his audience. Like he makes some connections for us, right? So first of all, Jesus says the father in the parable represents John the Baptist's call of repentance to what he calls the way of righteousness. So the father saying go and work in the vineyard, that stands for John the Baptist's ministry, and it's significant because it's John the Baptist's ministry that the chief priests and the elders have openly repudiated. Right? They don't go along with it. And when Jesus asks them, where did the authority of John come from, from heaven or from man, they say ultimately, we don't know. Like they do not subscribe to John's authority. And now that they've admitted that in public, Jesus asks them to judge a hypothetical scenario in which they themselves are represented. And so is John. So the father's call is John the Baptist's call. The first son, the rebel, well, he stands for the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Like they are exemplified by his example. They are the lowly and despised in society who say no to righteousness in their callings. Like their very being, their outward appearance is a repudiation of righteousness. But they do yes in their repentance by following John. They say, I will not. But then they repent of it and they follow and they go into the vineyard. The second son, the hypocrite, represents the chief priests and the elders these men are the opposite of the lowly and despised, right? These are the lofty. These are the admired. They say yes to righteousness in their calling. By definition, they exemplify the way of righteousness, at least according to outward appearance. But they do no to righteousness in their rejection of John and their refusal to repent and believe. So these Tax collectors, these prostitutes, the lowest of the low, they say no, but they do yes. By contrast, the highest of the high, these lofty chief priests and elders, they say yes, but they do no. And they've just admitted that the ones who actually do the will of the Father are the ones who do the will of the Father. And in saying so, they condemn themselves. So what Jesus is teaching in this parable is, yet again, another example of the uh, moral of the story that we saw at the end of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew 20, when Jesus said, the last will be first and the first last. We've heard Jesus say that a number of times. If you struggle to understand what is he talking about? This is what he's talking about. He is literally showing the first that they are now last and that the last are now first into the kingdom. It's important to pause here and observe that what Jesus is saying when he compares the tax collectors and the prostitutes on one hand and the chief priests and the elders on the other, he's not making like a class struggle commentary here, right? He's not looking at tax collectors and prostitutes, seeing that they are the lowly and saying the lowly are good people and the lofty are bad people. Like what sets the two apart is not their standing in the social hierarchy. What sets them apart is repentance. The act of repentance on the part of the lowly serves righteousness, but the rejection of repentance on the part of the lofty denies righteousness, and actually undermines righteousness with its hypocrisy. So that contrast that Jesus makes between the lowly on the one hand and the lofty on the other uh, does two kinds of work, you might think. First of all, it affirms something that we've seen over and over again when Jesus talks about the ethics of the kingdom uh, that's often expressed when we call it uh, the upside-down kingdom, that the logic of the kingdom oftentimes reverses the logic of the world, that the way things work out there is not the way things work in here. Jesus is applying this in many different ways. He's applied it already in speaking to the uh, disciples about the way power is used. He flipped the script on that and said, no, no. If you have authority in the kingdom, you don't lord it over other people the way they do out there. Instead, you're given that authority as a gift in order to serve others, right? The first will be last and the last will will be first. And now again, you see that dynamic taking place where John gives a call to repentance and the people that you would most expect to be hostile to it, listen and turn. And the people you would expect to be most receptive to it, harden themselves and reject it. That's what's happening here. That's Exemplifying the nature of the kingdom and how God works. In the kingdom, it's not by birth. It's not by status or power. It's not your own righteousness even that makes you. It's repentance. It's humility. It's faith. And in seeing that, in illustrating it and holding it in front of our face, what Jesus does is He heightens the contrast between these outcomes. The people who who should reject the call but actually answer it. And the people who should answer it but actually reject it. So that when you look at that, you see this is by God's grace. The contrast magnifies the grace of God because it doesn't follow our expectations. It doesn't happen the way these things usually happen. Also, keep in mind this, the same Jesus who gives this parable is the one who in John's Gospel says, in John 5 and in John 8, go and sin no more. So when he talks about tax collectors and prostitutes entering into the kingdom, they're not entering into the kingdom without repenting of their sins and turning from them. Right? They are going and sinning no more. That's the whole point. That people who have, as it were, the most to lose, the most to give up, are softening their hearts to that call to repentance. And those who, at least in human terms, have the least to sacrifice are refusing to give up what they're called to give up. So, the point, all of us are sinners, but some of us pretend like we're not. Some of us are in denial, and that's hypocrisy. And Jesus clearly prefers honest struggle to willful hypocrisy. Let me say a word about the vineyard before we go farther. Uh, we see it here, we've seen it already in parables, and we'll see it again in future parables, that the vineyard and vineyard-related things play a big part in the parables and the teaching ministry of Jesus. And to understand why, you have to think of that vineyard in symbolic terms. Uh, last week, we saw in Isaiah 5 an actual tipping of the hat uh, where we get like a, yes, the vineyard stands for this. In Isaiah 5, Isaiah says that the vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel, the sons of Judah. That's who God's vineyard uh are, is one of those. So the father, when he says, go and work in the vineyard, and that's associated with John the Baptist's call to repent and believe You can look at that call and see on its most basic level that that's a call to be my people. Be my people, go into my vineyard, serve me, work with me, be one of mine. That's what's going on in all of these vineyard symbols and analogies. So the chief priests and the elders, the Pharisees and their ilk, they already believe they are God's people. They don't need to answer a call to become God's people because they are already what they need to be. When they tangle with Jesus in John's Gospel, they insist in John 8, Abraham is our father. There is no call for us to answer. No vineyard for us to enter into. We were born into the vineyard. To which Jesus replies, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. It says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So Jesus is attacking them and their very sense of who they are and what they're born to and what they're entitled to, what their privileges are. He's saying to them essentially, you are not who you think you are. You need to repent. You need to turn. In refusing repentance, in other words, they are refusing Abraham's faith. They are refusing to enter the vineyard of God's people. Paul in Romans 2 says it like this. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. It's a matter of the heart. I'm sure people reading the book of Romans for the first time, a Jewish audience reading that, nor is circumcision outward and physical, might have said, actually, it is. But what he was pointing to was the greater spiritual reality. The spiritual circumcision, not the physical one, and it was the spiritual that mattered. It was the change of heart that mattered. It was the metamelomai that mattered because that's what made you the children of Abraham. The change of heart is what makes you God's vineyard workers. It's what makes you the house of Israel. It's what makes you the sons of Judah. So Jesus is essentially saying these tax collectors and prostitutes, by their change of heart, show that they are the children of Abraham. But you, by your hardness of heart, show that you are not. There are some parallel parables that you should be thinking about now. Now. Uh, You'll find these in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son, and then in chapter 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, because these parables both teach more or less the same thing as what Jesus is saying here. In the prodigal son, we have another parable that involves a father and two sons, just like this one in Matthew 21. Uh, The prodigal in that parable is the rebel, Right? He's the one who in his life says no to righteousness, but then comes to repent. And after being humbled, he returns to the Father and is accepted with rejoicing. In the parable of the prodigal son, the older brother parallels the hypocrites here. Like He says yes to righteousness in his self-confession, but his bitterness at the restoration of his brother reveals where his heart truly is, that he, in fact, is self-righteous. Now, in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, this one's really on the nose, right? Because Jesus has been talking here about tax collectors, and then in Luke, he tells a story about a literal tax collector who goes to the temple with a Pharisee, right? The Pharisee is a stand-in for, well, you know, the Pharisees, who are here? Uh, the chief priests and the elders, the members of the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees are one of the factions that rule in Jerusalem. And in that parable, the Pharisee makes his feeling of superiority over the lowly really clear. Right, his whole sense of his own righteousness is expressed in relationship to the unrighteousness of that unworthy tax collector right there. And then, by contrast, the tax collector. In that parable, he represents, in our parable, the tax collectors, right? That that we've just been talking about, right? Who are lowly, who stand before God in that low condition, humbled, and ask for mercy. And return home justified. So, this parable, like the parable of the prodigal son, and like the parable of the two sons in Matthew 21, makes it clear that it's repentance, not lowly social class that is the key to approval and acceptance. The tax collector is not right because he's a tax collector. He's right because he repents. That's the point. Years ago, there was a Bible study that we held, um, and it really went off the rails in a pretty bad way. And it went off the rails because the person leading it um, did what I think was an inspired move. He pointed off to the horizon where here in Sioux Falls, you know, the, the horizon is dominated by the, the, the beautiful lights of the state penitentiary, uh, always kind of there over our shoulders. And he looked at the penitentiary and he pointed to the penitentiary and he says, you are no better than they are. You are no better than they are in terms of righteousness before God. And there was a lady at the Bible study who heard that and objected because, of course, she was better than them. She'd never killed anyone. She'd never stolen anything. She wasn't a criminal. She was a good person. So by definition, what he was saying wasn't true. She wasn't the same as them. If anything, as a Christian, that made her even better than they were. She was actively doing good things. That attitude is not uncommon in religion today any more than it was in Jesus' day. And that's why Jesus pushes back hard against self-righteousness and hypocrisy. Now the moment that you compare yourself to someone else and conclude that you are a good person, that should be a red flag. When you think you don't need to repent because compared to them you're not that bad, that's pride telling you you have no reason to repent. The Father says go and do, but you know better. You're fine as you are. Others may need to hear that. In fact, there are a lot of others who probably do need to hear that, but not you. The way you could serve God is by letting them know that they need His grace so that when you hear the call to repentance, it sounds to your ears as if Jesus is telling other people that they need to be more like you. Which Jesus replies, the scum of the earth, the despised and rejected, the people that you look down your nose at are entering the kingdom before you. That's Jesus' warning to the comfortable and to the self-righteous. The people you despise are coming to me and you are saying no. With your lips... You serve me, but with your actions, you don't. Over and over again, Jesus condemns your smug self-righteousness and calls you to admit your sin. He tells you in the words of Joel 2 to rend your hearts and not your garments to repent. I think it's obvious how this applies to us. Uh, Number one, don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be one of those people who says yes to Jesus, but lives no, doesn't actually follow him. You may be respected, you may be admired, you may have influence in life, even power. But if you're not doing yes, when Jesus calls you to repent, it doesn't matter what you say, it doesn't matter what status you have. Don't be a hypocrite. And also don't follow hypocrites either. This should go without saying, but it needs to be said, don't follow hypocrites. Don't follow the example of the self-righteous. The singer Peter Gabriel back in the 1980s and, and probably, I, th- I think we would all agree, the, the best era for music um, mm-hmm. perhaps not. But Peter Gabriel in his song, Big Time, got one thing really right. He captured our materialist ambition. He's saying, I've had enough. I'm getting out to the city, the big, big city. I'll be a big noise with all the big boys. So much stuff I will own. And then he captures, I think, the essence of this attitude in religion, the, the spirit of hypocrisy. He says, I will pray to a big God as I kneel in the big church. I've known a lot of people who've gone to pray to a big God as they kneel in a big church, but they're there to serve themselves, not to serve the God of Abraham. Do not be impressed with religious hypocrisy. It won't save you. It doesn't have that power. Also, don't trust in status or class. Don't imagine that God's favor depends somehow on your social standing, your class, your birth, your tribe, your nation, whatever it is. None of those things make you righteous or acceptable or loved in the eyes of God. Heaven is not like the international arrivals airports. There is not at the pearly gates a special expedited line for Americans, for example right? Everyone stands at those gates the same, and who you are, what you were born into doesn't matter. If you are Norwegian or German or Dutch, you'll be in the same line as the rest of us. If you're French or Indian or Saudi Arabian, you'll be in the same line with the rest of us because God looks on the heart, not the birth certificate. If you're upper class, if you're middle class, if you're working class, if you have no class at all, it doesn't matter. You'll be in the same line with the rest of us because God doesn't look on these things. He looks to repentance, not status. So repent and believe and then follow. One last thing. One last thing. This has to do with Jesus and his relationship to the lowly because I feel like I've given a certain impression. I'm not sure it's exactly right. And so I want to be sure that we don't leave with the wrong idea what needs to be said here. In Luke 15, verse 2, the Pharisees, in order to explain their problem with Jesus, do, I think, one of the best examples of, of uh, like intending to condemn someone and actually giving them a motto. They condemn Jesus, they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That's their case. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And when I hear that, I think, amen. Like, thank goodness he does, because if he didn't, what hope would there be for any of us? And yet, in this sermon, I've been at pains to emphasize that Jesus doesn't receive and eat with sinners because he likes or condones sin. He doesn't receive and eat with them because their lowly status is actually virtuous. Jesus isn't just privileging the marginalized. Jesus is not using his platform to elevate their voices. Even so, even so, there is a clear affinity between Jesus and the poor. There is a clear affinity between Jesus and the weak. Between Jesus and the lowly and despised. And I don't want you to think that because I'm qualifying it, that that relationship doesn't exist. There is a special regard that Jesus has for them. The question is, what is the source of this affinity? Why does Jesus prefer the company of tax collectors and prostitutes to chief priests and elders? Because of their repentance? Yes, definitely. But isn't there also something about the disparity of power between them that makes a difference here? Is there nothing about the repentance of a prostitute that pictures Jesus more than the repentance of an elder or a chief priest? I think there is something about that that speaks to Jesus differently. Like Jesus points to tax collectors and prostitutes who are raised up and elevated by the kingdom. Like they are the last who have become first. We hear that, we cheer. Yes, Jesus is sticking it to the man. He's sticking it to the authorities. Those who are the last have become the first, and those who are the first have become the last. Sure. But in a deeper sense, isn't Jesus the first who has become last? Could it be that that explains the affinity that He has for them? If those tax collectors and prostitutes have been raised up in the kingdom, isn't it because first Jesus was willing to descend, to go down beneath them, to go lower than they were in order to lift them up? Like If you, like them, have become everything that you are because of His grace, it's only because before that, Jesus got down on His knees Jesus got down on his face. He got down to the very bottom beneath you, lower than you, in order to lift you up. So yeah, thinking of Jesus and what he's done, don't be a hypocrite. Yes, repent and believe. But we can go even farther. Thinking of Jesus and what he's done, Jesus and how low he's gone for your sake and for mine we can show some love to those repentant rebels. Because right? all of us, even at our lowest, show how far his love has had to travel for us. And in that way, even at our worst, our example can glorify him. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org.